You're about to listen to an episode of Legally Fonds. This episode is brought to you in association with LawSchool.ie. LawSchool.ie is Ireland's leading provider of tuition for the FE1 or King's Inns entrance exams. Each course is delivered live online with a specific exam focus and supported by the latest manuals. Shorter, pre-recorded workshops are also available and courses commence every year in June and November. Register anytime at lawschool.ie and for a 10% discount on any course, just use the discount code LEGALLYFOND. In this episode of Legally Fond, Pierce speaks to Senator David Norris about his constitutional challenge, taking the government through the Irish courts and all the way to Strasbourg. The Chief Justice, O'Higgins, gave a bizarre judgment that I think is one of the worst judgments. He misdirected himself in law. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Legally Fond. For those of you who listen to Legally Fond regularly, you will be well acquainted with our standard episode format. We take interesting court cases and aim to explain the guiding legal principles behind them. However, perhaps all too often, we forget there is a human side to these proceedings. In today's episode, we explore the life of a litigant, but not just any litigant. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by a man who is a long-serving senator, scholar, author, academic, presidential candidate, and for the last 50 years, the undeniable face of the Irish gay rights movement. Senator David Norris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's lovely to have you. Senator, it is often said you were the first gay man in Ireland. What was it like being gay in Ireland in the 50s and 60s and indeed when you were growing up and in college? First of all, being gay was perfectly natural to me. Uh, And um, I wasn't really the stereotyped uh, gay person uh, that you see on television and so on, the uh, camp, silly sort of creature. Um, I was the alpha male. I was the leader of the gang. I was the one that got all the others into mischief. Uh, and I was a good rugby player, a good swimmer, a good tennis player, all these sort of things. Um, so to me, it was perfectly natural. And it came as a bit of a surprise to discover that society didn't regard it as natural. Uh, and there was something to be ashamed of and to conceal and to, to be afraid of and all this kind of stuff. Um, so uh, that was the situation. The other thing was that... Uh, in the uh, 50s and 60s, uh, homosexuality was not mentioned at all. Not once. I mean, there was a complete clampdown. Uh, it wasn't ever mentioned. Uh, you might catch a glimpse uh, tangentially uh, from a court case or something. But that was it. Full stop. Uh, and uh, any images there were were completely and utterly negative. Uh, so, and this was as a result of the situation, uh, thanks to the churches. Uh, you know, the um, church described homosexuality as a crimen illud horribile non nominandum inter Christianos, that crime so horrible it must not be mentioned among Christians. And they eventually stamped it down. You know, it was. It was really an appalling uh, situation. So I suppose then, obviously, having so eloquently characterised the negative or perhaps completely non-existent perception of homosexuality when you were growing up, what then drove you into recognising that something had to be done in changing societal attitudes? Well, uh, first of all... uh, it was obvious to me that the situation was unjust. 
and discriminatory. And I was brought up in a family that fought against discrimination and, and so on. I mean, um, uh, my grandmother, my parents, and so on, were committed to these sort of liberal values. Um, and uh, I saw that this was wrong, and I determined to try and correct it. So naturally then, following on from that, um, of course you were a founding member of the Campaign for Homosexual Law Reform in yeah. Ireland. And um, as part of that, in 1977, Senator, you initiated your legal proceedings in the High Court um, against legislation that criminalised homosexuality in this country. I suppose I have a question here that is twofold for you. Firstly, what brought you to the point where you moved away from, shall we say, social activism, where you felt this question needed to be dealt with by the courts? And secondly, how did you gauge your chances of success in 1970s Ireland? Well, I mean, first of all, we'd been preparing the case from several years before that. Um, and uh, we got a brief from a very distinguished uh, legal uh, source, the late Donald Barrington. Uh, he left because he became a judge and so on. Um, but uh, he gave the brief and he said we were absolutely right, uh, intellectually and morally, uh, but it would be a long road uh, and uh, there will be difficulties. Um, so that, that, was, that was encouraging. Um, so what was the rest of the question? I can't remember. Uh, the, the question was, uh, I suppose, what brought you to the point where you felt the place for this question to be settled and answered was at the courts? Well, I kind of always felt that. But I approached it in different ways. In the beginning, uh, I was dealing... I was head of the legal section in, in the gay rights movement. And uh, we had a wonderful uh, solicitor called Garrett Sheehan, who's now a judge... Uh, and he used to, without fees most of the time, uh, to re represent people in, in court. Uh, and I represented quite a large number of people. They're all rather respectable, you know, doctors, lawyers, priests, all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, they were shy of coming into the Hirschfeld Center because that would expose them. Uh, so they had these kind of rather uh, fumbled exchanges in the bushes in Phoenix Park and so on, and the lavatories and the keys. And um, they were caught. Uh, and um, they would appear in court. Um, and I always hoped that one of them would uh, uh, take a legal, uh, 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 constitutional defence. Mm -hmm. But, of course, none of them would, because the last thing they wanted was any extra publicity, and that would be put you right in the spotlight. Um, so I decided to take it myself. Um, and um, one of the... Um, difficulties of taking a case in that in that kind of situation because you had to you had to show uh, that you had been injured by the law but luckily uh, I had had a collapse in uh, Switzer's restaurant um, and they called the ambulance and took me to Bagger Street Hospital uh, uh, they thought it was a heart attack but it turned out my heart was perfectly all right and during the discussions with the doctor it came out that I was gay uh, and uh, they decided that uh, this was the problem, so they sent me to a shrink, and I went one visit to the shrink. And uh, <laughs> his advice was that the law in this country was injurious to my mental health, and I'd be better off to go and live in the south of France. Now, my mother's family had been in this country for several thousand years, 
Uh, and I, they survived the Vikings, the Danes, the Normans, the Tour de Danan, the whole bloody lot of them. And I was damned if I was going to be shoved out of this country for being a fairy. So um, that annoyed me. But that gave me the leverage to be able to take the case uh, because I could show that as an Irish citizen, I'd been told that I wasn't welcome in this country. So naturally there, you must have quite a strong sense of Irishness because I would imagine for many people who would have found themselves in similar situations, they would have taken what could arguably have been said as the easy route of abandoning Ireland, unfortunately feeling rejected by their fellow countrymen, by the society in which they grew up. But naturally you felt that you were deserving of being a part. Absolutely. I was furious. How dare they? No, I, 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 I thought it was an outrageous suggestion. Um, but it did give me the way into the court, and that was very useful. I can imagine. And so, now that we've been brought back to the court, what was it like walking in on that, that first day, the opening day of the, of, of, of the case? What was the atmosphere like? What were you feeling like? Well, I was excited. I, I, thought, it was, I, I thought it was terrific. And there was a lot of attention. I mean, a lot of uh, uh, barristers and people in their wigs and gowns came in and crowded in to have a look and see what was going on, because they were all interested in this case. Um, uh, my solicitor was John Jay, and uh, John looked like a rather doleful bloodhound, but he had a wicked sense of humour, and he spent his time... Uh, drawing caricatures and writing limericks and so on, some of them quite indecent, and passing them back to me with a big solemn face. And I had very difficult, difficulty not laughing outright in the, in, in the court. Uh, so that was uh, part of that, that was part of the uh, the atmosphere. But it was dramatic. I mean, we knew that this was going to make waves. Um, yeah. But with regard to the court cases themselves, the court case itself, the initial one in the High Court, uh, my main contribution to that was to insist on the inclusion of witnesses from all over the world, international witnesses, uh, because I saw this case as a political case. Uh, I saw it as breaking the silence um, and... Uh, for that, I wanted international witnesses because I knew that if we had them giving evidence day after day, it would be on the front page of the newspapers, and that would effectively end the silence. So that was what we did, and we had the, the president of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, at the, Professor Spiegel, at the time when they changed the classification of homosexuality as an illness. They removed it from the category as an illness. Uh, we had Rose Robertson from Parents' Inquiry in London, we had various theologians and statisticians and I don't know what else and all the rest of it. And interestingly, the government completely failed to, int to introduce any evidence, whatever. Um, so uh, that was my part uh, in, in, in really in the thing. And I, I went to America, for example, and I, I interviewed people there and I spoke to them and I, uh, I got uh, court cases that had been taken in the States and so on, precedents and so on. But the main thing was the witnesses. And of course, despite all that, unfortunately, and I'm sure I have no need to remind you, the case ended in defeat in the it High Court. It did. It was rather interesting because the, the, the government had very cleverly chosen one of the very few 
Protestant judges, <laughs> so they couldn't say it was the implementation of Roman Catholic theology. Uh, and the judge gave a very interesting ruling. Um, he said that he accepted the evidence. He said that there were a surprisingly large number of gay people, that we weren't mentally deficient, that we weren't child blessed, that we were all blah, 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 blah. But in the last bit, he took a complete swerve and said, nevertheless, despite all this, because of the Christian and democratic nature of the state, I have to find against uh, the plaintiff. So that was that. Uh, and uh, then we went off to the Supreme Court. And um, in the Supreme Court, I mean, we got a divided judgment, three, two, there were five judges. Uh, and um, uh, the Chief Justice O'Higgins gave a bizarre judgment that I think is one of the worst judgments. He misdirected himself in law, apart from anything else, because all you're supposed to deal with in the Supreme Court on an appeal like that is technical matters arising from the evidence in the first case. And since I was the only one who presented evidence, it was all went my way. And in fact, uh, Justice Henshi, one of the dissent, two dissenting judges, uh, said I should have won was a walkover because of the government's signal failure to introduce evidence. Um, but that didn't bother Mr. Higgins, who went wandering around in this kind of maze of nonsense uh, about spreading disease and I don't know what else. And, and also the idiotic notion that you could coerce gay people by the law into being heterosexual. Hmm. It was absolute nonsense. If I actually may read a quote from Justice O'Higgins. Oh, do uh, please, it would be so lovely to hear him again. <laughs> I won't do the accent. The deliberate practice of homosexuality is morally wrong. It is damaging to the health both of individuals and the public, and it is potentially harmful to the institution of marriage. How does that make you feel listening to it in a 2020 context, but equally, I suppose, I'll cast you back to when you first heard it? Yeah. Well, it makes me feel what an idiot he was, number one. And number two, how right we were to go for marriage equality. I mean, uh, which shows absolutely that, that um, uh, gay people are not inimical to marriage. It's, it's one of the options now that uh, gay people can participate in. Uh, and um, in fact, um, after... Uh, marriage equality went through, uh, the number of heterosexual marriages increased as well. I think probably because uh, people saw their gay friends getting married and they thought, well, we might as well too. Yes, I, I suppose in a way it almost re regenerated the, 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 the um, cultural phenomenon that is marriage, when it was seen to be an egalitarian institution that was extended to all people of, of all sexual orientations and interests and passions, and it was very much equalized in yes, the eyes of the public. absolutely. And so, anyway, we, we, we left off there from, from a legal standpoint with your defeat in the Supreme Court, but that wasn't the end for you. you. You decided to push on and you went to Europe, to the European Court of Human Rights. So this, this was really the big leagues. This was, you know, you were, you know, you were making it or else you were bust. I mean, there must have been an even greater sense of urgency, but equally excitement about the case that was before you. Well, yes, there was. Um, but at the same time, uh, as uh, a litigant in the European Court of Human Rights, 
you're very restrained. Uh, you know, you are not required to, you're not allowed to speak in your own case at all. It's all done through the lawyers. And the lawyers are treated a good deal better than you are. I mean, uh, uh, they got nearly twice as much for their uh, expenses, you know. So they were all staying in plush hotels in the middle of Strasbourg, and I was in a and b out in the Rhine. <laughs> <laughs> but that didn't stop me. Now, the other thing that was of interest was there had been a previous case, uh, Jeff Dudgeon, who was a friend of mine, still is a friend of mine, uh, in the north of Ireland. And, um, but Jeff's case was different uh, in the sense that his was tactical, mine was strategic. Um, Jeff took his case uh, as a result of a situation in which his flat was raided in a drugs bust for marijuana, uh, and they came across his diaries, and there were uh, apparently assignations and things recorded, so they went after him on the gay issue. Uh, and he short-circuited everything uh, and didn't exhaust the domestic remedies. He went straight to Europe, uh, whereas I wanted every single outing in every single court I could uh, in order to get maximum publicity uh, for it. So there were, there were two different cases, but his was significant. The other thing is, uh, one of the judges who had, uh, the Irish judge, who had uh, um, um, listened to his arguments and so on and found against him, also turned up in my case. And uh, he, we won by one vote, one vote, with the Irish judge voting against us. Um, I can't remember the name of the judge. I can't think of it now, but he was, he was regarded as a reforming judge, but he was absolutely useless, was absolutely hopeless, and a bully. And I suppose uh, you, you mentioned there that the, the Irish judge uh, voted against you yes. uh, in the European court. Having uh, as well gone through what, what you did in the Irish courts, was there part of you that lost faith in the Irish legal system or indeed in, in Irish society? No, not at all. Uh, because, I mean, the Irish people were very much in advance of the legal profession and of the, the, uh, and, on, and of the church and all these sort of things in the state. Um, because long before I got on the, the go with, with the gay rights movement and so on, um, um, a, a remarkable uh, Roman Catholic Jesuit priest, had written, Father Michal McGrail, had written a book called Prejudice and Tolerance in Ireland. And one of the things that he used to look at this was the question of reaction to the laws on homosexuality. And even then, before any campaign had started, uh, a plurality of Irish people said it was wrong, that it shouldn't be criminal. So that was very interesting. So I've always felt the Irish people were decent, tolerant, and, and, and fair-minded. Uh, and after all, don't forget that this law, uh, the, the uh, 1885 Labouchere Amendment, which was one of the principal ones that was used and was used successfully against Oscar Wilde, um, that um, this was introduced uh, late at night without any discussion, uh, after midnight, um, uh, in an almost empty parliament. There was no discussion, and it certainly was not Irish. I mean, if you look uh, at the Brechen laws, for example, um, uh, there's provision for homosexuality. You know, what arrangements are to be made if the husband runs off with a scullery boy? <laughs> 
And I, I suppose the Irish courts didn't take very kindly to, to the advancement of that particular argument. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless... But that, it was all, this is the thing. It was, it was terribly funny, you know. I mean, um, I remember the, uh, Aidan Brown, the, the, the uh, counsel for the government, uh, kneeling up on the bench in, in the court and saying to Spiegel, the professor, the, the, the head of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, well, Professor, you come over here at your own expense. I'd ask, like to ask you, do you have a particular axe to grind? And Spiegel said, I don't know what you mean. And uh, Brown said, well, I'm asked, I'll pull it straight to you, are you a homosexual? And Spiegel thought about it for a minute and he said, well... You know, I, when I was in the uh, boat club in Harvard, I used to like looking at the guys in the shower, so I suppose I'm about a 1.5. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there were lots of things like that. I mean, uh, when they put me in the box and they asked me, uh, was I not aware uh, this, uh, uh, of the uh, antagonistic attitudes going right back to the Roman Empire? I mean, the emperor... Uh, introduced, Justinian introduced uh, 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 restrictions on gay people and so on and so forth. And I said, just of course I did. I knew that. And he was perfectly sensible in doing so because his soothsayers had advised him that there was a direct correlation uh, between acts of buggery and earthquakes. But I said, our understanding of climatology has increased considerably since then and we no longer... <laughs> uh, relate sexual activity to, to, to natural, natural disasters. disasters and so on. So that led to a headline, um, no earthquakes in Ireland, says Norris. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, but it's fantastic to, to kind of hear you recall the spirit and enthusiasm with which you went through this. And I suppose that's part of the reason that, that you've, you've, you've I, I hesitate to say dedicate your life, but dedicated certainly part of your life and considerable part of your public life to this cause. Because, of course, it wasn't over after the, the European uh, Court's judgment when, when it did indeed find that these particular laws went against the European Charter or Convention of Human Rights, rather. And it wasn't until 1993 that they were finally Yeah, but abolished. that was no harm because it gave me an opportunity to soften up my fellow members of the Eroctus. I mean, I wrote to them all uh, directing the, the uh, and forming the, the, the letter uh, to suit the particular recipients. I mean, for example, I wrote to Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party, uh, asking how they could possibly support a British imperial statute that had never been <laughs> discussed by an Irish parliament with the Irish people against it, uh, and so on. So uh, that was rather fun. I... I, I um, uh, I remember I wrote round to all of them asking what... In, in the old days, sorry, it been a long time before that I'd written, and I got one reply from a fellow who's still alive, actually, a nice fellow. Um, I asked, would he support a change in the law? He said, oh, yeah, I would. I'd reintroduce the death penalty. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't exactly the response we were looking for. No, but it gave me a laugh. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's... it's, it's, it's Fantastic to see that as well, that you, 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 know, you didn't let anybody get away with you know, views that you might have taken issue with, and you, you certainly pulled them up, and, and you sought that justification for their stance. Yes, and I usually laughed at them, and I exposed them to ridicule, mm -hmm. and I'm quite good at that. Which I suppose is the greatest weapon, in a way, that you had, is, is that, you know, that wonderful 
caustic wit and 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 that um, that engagement and and of course the I mean there was a, there was an occasion in the Senate when uh, Willie Farrell um, said just when I'd left uh, he said I was a pervert or something I can't remember something like that and the next day they were all sitting on him and trying to make him apologise and I said don't bother torturing poor old Willie I mean. I wasn't the slightest bit insulted. You can only be insulted by someone you respect, and Willie knows perfectly well I've no respect for him at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine that kept him quiet thereafter. But um, yes, I mean, like I, like I say as well, you know, when we're looking, and you've mentioned some of the headlines that come up, I, th- I think one of the, the, the famous ones from your high court action is the opening line from your counsel in that my client is a congenital, uh, irreversible homosexual. Oh, that was absolutely wonderful, because uh, first of all, when he said it, I mean, I thought, oh, right, well, if that's what it takes, that's fine. But I did have a little heterosexual episode in my teens, so uh, I wasn't quite sure. But the papers the next day reporter was standing up, rising to his feet in the High Court yesterday, Garrett Cooney, SC, uh, told the court that he was near the first <laughs> constitutional homosexual. So it's obviously um, contagious on, yeah, on the bench. Garrett went crackers <laughs> and demanded a retraction. Mm-hmm. So the next day the papers said, I am not a homosexual, says Cooney. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> I know, half Ireland over their breakfast marmalade was saying, mm, well, I wonder, his eyes are rather close together, aren't they? <laughs> So, uh, like I say, in, in, in 1993, you, you, I, I guess you got what you were looking for. Yeah, but the other thing was, you see, it was, it was no harm be- to have that t- delay because, uh, first of all, uh, the Minister for Justice changed and became Maura Gagan Quinn. Yes. Uh, and uh, she was spoken to by a very remarkable uh, woman um, whose uh, 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 son was gay, who was a senior Fianna Gael uh, activist, Phil Moore. And uh, Phil spoke as a one parent to another, to Maura Gagan Quinn. Uh, and uh, that resulted in quite a tough stance by Maura Gagan Quinn because some of the people uh, tried to put down nasty, uh, discriminatory uh, amendments uh, to have a different age of consent, for example, and so on and so forth. And Maura Gwagan Quinn listened to them, and she said, and this is very important because it's not about sexuality, it's about one's attitude towards the implementation of the law. She said, as Minister for Justice in an Irish government, I would need clear, cogent and factual reasons to introduce any measure of discrimination against an Irish citizen. As none have been provided, I'm not accepting these amendments. That's wonderful. You know, yes, there is a, a place in legislation for discrimination in certain circumstances, but you need to fulfil certain requirements, and they have not been fulfilled, and that's it, full stop, end of story. And, when you, heard, and when you heard this, and, and, and when this, um, like I say, when, when these laws were finally abolished, did you feel that it was a matter of job done for David Norris? Were you finished? Or did you see this as only a stepping stone to further gaining equality? Well, I thought it was a major achievement. But that's just, it's just a technical thing, the change in the law. And not many people were prosecuted, but some were. Uh, and, uh, I mean, one of the things I did was I went through the, the, the guard of statistics on crime. It was quite difficult to tease them out because they were all lumped together as unnatural offences and attempts. Now, I have to say, the attempts thing always made me laugh. I mean, 
God, the shame of it. One thing to be done having got your jollies, but to be screwed before you get them. I mean, that was pretty ghastly, I would have thought. Um, so there we are. Hmm. And so do, do you find now, like, you know, we, we, we're sitting here t- 2020 now, looking back at it, you must have a great sense of pride and achievement in, in, what, in what you've done for, obviously, not only yourself, not only the gay community of your time. I don't, think about, I don't really? think about it No, I don't. I, don't, I do not, uh, because it's in the past. You mm. know, I look to the future. Um, I'm interested in, in pushing legislative reform in various areas, including health and so on, uh, and, and that's where I am. Uh, but it does happen. I mean, sometimes I, I would get a letter from a, a, a mother who said, I just want to thank you because my son is gay, he's 23, he's found a partner and he's happy, and part of that is due to the work that you did years ago. And that's lovely. That is nice. Yeah, I like that. But I, I wouldn't like to feel that people owed me things. You know, I don't want to remove one uh, burden mm-hmm. and replace it with another. Of course. You know? um, but I, I'm, I, I, I'm glad to think that uh, the work we did uh, made things better for people. And so, Senator, I, I'll come to my final question now. What are the next battles for you, and if not you, what are the next battles for those who are to, to take the torch from you in, in, in the fight for social justice? Well, I couldn't really say. I mean, that's up to them. I mean, I'm now old. I'm 76. Uh, so I'm, I'm largely hors de combat. Uh, but um, there is work to be done. I mean, there are certain technical aspects of the tax legislation, for example, that need to be completely cleared up. Uh, because, for example, civil servants um, uh, are discriminated against because uh, they didn't take up the option of marriage and so on and so forth. So they're, they're, that's taken out of their pension, all this rubbish. Um, uh, and that has, to, that has to be rectified. And there's also the, the question of uh, bullying uh, people in schools. There needs to be much more uh, open information. And I, I, I also think that... It is outrageous that um, state-paid-for schools that are under the direction of Roman Catholic uh, agencies should not, in many cases, uh, accept the giving of information about homosexuality to to the students. Of course they should. Every individual is entitled to knowledge about that. It is for the parents to provide the ethical context but the facts are indisputable and they should be presented as a matter of course to every kid. A lot for our listeners to digest and indeed for me to think about. Senator Dave Norris, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 